This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from St Augustine's Moorland Anglican Church in Melbourne's Inner North. Today's big question, what is the right relationship with the environment? We're asking this question today to Dr. Catherine Williams. Now, Kath is Associate Professor in Environmental Psychology at the University of Melbourne. Her research is grounded in partnerships with environmental agencies concerned with forest management and urban greening. She's also an editor for Forestry, an international journal on forest research, and lives in Melbourne's inner north, and she joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Kath Williams. Well, welcome, Kath. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks, Rob. Now, you're, you work in environmental psychology. You're the editor for a journal on forest research, yet you live and work in Melbourne's, uh, in the inner city of Melbourne. Does that cause you frustration? Uh, actually, no. Okay, <laughs> okay right. Yeah. Um, two things. One is I can ride to work, the most important thing. Okay, right, yeah. Yep. Second is I think it's really important to remember that we have an urban forest. And right. in fact, in the city of Melbourne, we do a lot of talking about urban forests and urban forestry. And we think about that connection between the forests here that we live in yep. and those bigger forests that we might think of more normally. Okay, and so you, you love the environment. Though. You love going for a bushwalk, even in, yeah. in Melbourne or outside of Melbourne? Yeah. And in fact, love um, walking in nearby nature, like uh, Royal Park is a fantastic place to be, yep. um, as is Gilpin Park, just near where I live, where you can go and see galahs and all kinds of birds and wonderful trees. Terrific. Excellent. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're talking with Dr. Kath Williams about the right relationship with the environment. So, Kath, our smaller questions to you today are about forests and human well-being. Now, do you feel qualified at all? I should be, but I'm very nervous about what, what <laughs> okay. you might ask. <laughs> well, there's two questions, both multiple choice, and I do try to help our guests to pass. Okay, question one. What is the Japanese practice of shirin-yoku? Shirin in Japanese means forest. So what does yoku mean? Is it A, forest bathing, B, forest burning, C, forest burping, or D, forest babbling? It's so too easy. <laughs> <laughs> you were nervous about the quiz. I was, I was trying to reassure you that it was going to be okay. So which, which, one, which one's it? shirin-yoku? Yeah, shirin-yoku is um, the forest Bathing. That's right. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. So tell us about forest bathing. You know, obviously you know about it. Uh, yeah, it was an idea that emerged actually in the 1980s in Japan. Um, and it's a, a practice, like a ritualistic practice of walking in forests for the purposes of um, boosting health. You're on the way, Kath. So question two. Now, when some think of forests and well-being, people think of tree hugging. Now, according to the article, How to Hug a Tree, appearing on thoughtco.com, which of the following is not a suggested type of tree hug? Is it A, the vertical tree hug, B, the full body tree hug, C, up in the air tree hug, or D, a flying body slam tree hug? Yeah, that one's kind of obvious too, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> don't do the body slam. Okay, you, you'll come off worse. Well, that's right. It's probably not so good for you or the tree, perhaps. But anyway, um, you, have you ever hugged a tree? Uh, who hasn't? <laughs> Some people, perhaps, who, who may not be so hugging. Yeah. Have you ever been called a tree hugger, though? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and as a psychologist who works with trees, I often um, people assume that I actually you know, psychoanalyse trees, which <laughs> is 
<laughs> Super fun. But you don't do that? No. no. Okay, well, <laughs> Kath, you are at one with nature. You've got two of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. <laughs> so, Kath, you work as an environmental psychologist, and part of your work considers the psychological benefits of nature experience. So what made you interested in uh, researching forests in our natural environment? I guess it, it emerged once I finished my undergraduate degree. Uh, Peter and I moved... So Peter's your... Yeah, Peter's my husband. Right, yep, yep, okay. uh, so Peter, my husband, <laughs> yep. and I uh, moved down to Gippsland. And I was living there, working in a small community, bringing up kids mainly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I got to a point where I was looking for a PhD topic and trying to think about what I wanted to do. And the thing that really, really intrigued me about the community that I was in was this ongoing conflict over forests and forest management. Mm. So, Because you were it, living in a, was it a, a timber town sort of area, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it's, a, it's a timber yeah. town that we were living in. And um, in the 1970s, it had been really heated conflict over forest management. That had kind of died down. But there was still this residual kind of um, anger at at greenies. Yeah, tree huggers. <laughs> yeah, 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 like you'd see on cars in the town, car stickers saying things like, fertilise the bush, doze in, doze in a greenie. You know, really aggressive statements around tree huggers. Yeah. Um, and so I was intrigued by that conflict as a you know, kid who'd grown up in the city and had a very, I guess, simplistic idea of what it meant to look after the environment, to be in this community, to experience passion from both sides of the debate, um, mm. really triggered my exploration of those ideas. Because there's tension, wasn't there? Because obviously there's some who wanted to con- conserve the environment for its own sake, but this is also a key industry for, yeah. this, for this town. It, requ- it creates employment and jobs as well. So there's a tension there, which you obviously experienced. Yeah, yeah. And so when I went to start my PhD, I did a first study where I went and interviewed people right along kind of between Melbourne and uh, eastern Gippsland. Mm -hmm. And I really thought I was trying to understand those differences. I wanted to explore, you know, the conflict and where it came from, why were people so passionate about these things. But the really weird thing that happened during those uh, interviews was that I started hearing people saying the same thing, actually repeatedly saying the same thing on all sides of the debate. People talking about magical forests, people talking about the forest as a cathedral, people talking about um, this sense of spiritual connection with forests. And that just gripped me and I made a beeline for that um, in my PhD studies and so ended up exploring that spiritual connection so with forests. Yeah, wow. So that obviously surprised you. You weren't expecting that outcome. Yeah, no. I think I think as someone who hadn't really understood the broader communities, including logging communities, four-wheel drivers, hunters, the way that they were connecting with nature was actually grounded in... Um, a spiritual connection. A spiritual connection as well. Yeah. So, so what did you make of that then? Uh, well, it really resonated for me personally. I think, and the research shows this, that most of us have those experiences at some point in time that we, um, most of us, experience a connection with nature. So it resonated with me. It also intrigued me. And I think it, you know, partly because of that similarity across very disparate groups. Yeah. I was intrigued by connection with the forest, but also the potential for connection between groups who disagreed quite strongly on other things. Right, yeah. But uh, your research then showed that there was actually a, a deep connection, though, perhaps, over the, the, how people viewed 
the, the forests? Yeah. Once I sort of tuned into that question of spiritual relationships with forests, I went away and looked at the academic literature on, I guess, what you might think of as religious or spiritual experience um, mm. more generally, and realised that um, a lot of the research had just kind of looked as nature experience as one kind of blob right. of one yeah. type of thing. Um, and it's probably not very interesting to other people, but, you know, <laughs> that meant that what I then went and did was try and do some explorations to kind of unpick it and understand the different forms of ways that we connect spiritually with yeah. forests. And that picked out themes around um, awe, those moments of awe and wonder where we, you know, we see a huge tree and we're just kind of like bowled over yeah. by its size. But also much more ordinary experiences of restoration and connectedness where the world just feels right um, Maslow talked about these as mm. plateau experiences when mm. just things feel right. Mm. So then an interesting question then emerges. So how did the people who are cutting down these trees kind of reconcile these feelings? Like there's great awe and majesty entering a cathedral, but now I'm just going to, I'm going to chop it down and make some money out of it. Was that, was that too simplistic a way of understanding their connection to the, to the environment? Yeah, I explored those ideas with them. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talk with people who are, in an everyday use of the forest in those ways, often when they talk about the forest and their connection with it, they actually talk about it almost like a garden, mm -hmm. as a place that we use and that we nurture and steward. So I find that a little bit hard to reconcile sometimes with the large-scale commercial forestry, which, which, yeah. which actually doesn't feel like gardening in the same way. But uh, you could see those underpinning ideas of people trying to make sense of that right, okay, themselves. Yeah. So what do you then make of this spiritual connection that people are drawing from nature and their experience of forests? It resonates for me. It makes sense. We all share that kind of experience, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, it unpacks, I guess, bigger questions. Yeah, that's what <laughs> we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> around why that is so much part of the human experience. Right, yeah. So do you think then that the environment can serve as a spiritual end? Like you said, worship, you know, many people would worship Mother Nature in itself. Yeah, I want to um, kind of reframe that question yeah, sure. a little bit, if that's okay. Because yeah, that's fine. Um, you think about worshipping Mother Nature. Um, to me, worshipping nature is not actually inappropriate. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think of is the you know the old time marriage vows. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in the very old marriage service, we promise to, you know, with with my body, I thee worship. That idea of worship and giving worship to other people. Um, and I think other beings is not not inappropriate. Not inappropriate. Not inappropriate. Yeah. So, but having said that, I do think that um, that worship needs to be in a bigger context and in a balance. Mm. You know, one of the things we notice is, is um, some forms of environmentalism really uh, prioritise protecting um, particular species or the environment without actually thinking about social justice for people. And we've We've seen where that road leads and it can be quite disastrous for all kinds of communities. And mm -hmm. so thinking about that balance between um, all the different organisms that are part of the systems that we live in, that are our home, yeah. um, you know, we need to think about that carefully. Yeah. Now, questions just come through from our text line from our live audience here. What do you think that we can learn from Indigenous Australian peoples about their spiritual understandings of land and environment? I love that question. It's... <laughs> one thing I really wanted to talk about today and I think it's right to acknowledge you know that we're here meeting today on Wurundjeri country because that places us in that connection um, to this place that we walk on with our feet 
um, and all the other things for whom this is home. Yeah. And also to this, um, you know, wider community of people who've cared for this place for such a long time. So mm. I think we can learn a lot. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So you've talked about just 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 winding back slightly to the idea of the worship. In some respects, you're saying it's appropriate to worship, as you would say, when you make a marriage vow, to worship another person. So in, in that context, there's a rightness to worshiping the environment, perhaps. But there's a, would there be a sense that that's inappropriate to make it the ultimate sense of worship, though, do you think? I guess as a Christian, um, I think of that sense of worship in the, or reverence, you know, in the context of a bigger relationship. Yeah. Um, if we worship if we show the worth of the other beings that we share this place with, that it's in the context that we are creatures mm. um, and that we we sit in a relationship, all of us together, Under with our creator. Cre- yeah, yeah. So you've just mentioned you are a Christian believer. So maybe can you tell us, tell us a bit about your story, about how that happened? Now, you, you grew up going to church, so how was that? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a Christian family and in a Christian community, so yeah. Lutheran church out in... in um, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, because um, there were several key influences in yeah, your life and faith, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, and I yeah. suppose I want to pick out ones that were really important in terms of you know, think, my thinking about the environment and yeah. drawing so, me to so that. Yeah, so who were they? So first of all, my nana, mm-hmm. so my, my mum's mum. Yeah, uh, it was just really special to me. She was, you know, a really quietly devout Christian. She had, you know, grown up through two wars and lived a really simple, frugal life and it was she that taught me how to compost. Right. Uh, she that showed me how to garden. Yeah. How to turn what you've garden produced into a pot of soup that could feed a family. Right. Um, so that was huge. But I think the other one is actually Peter. So you kind of felt, you sort of felt that she was in the right relationship with uh, the environment, perhaps, in terms of her connectedness to the to the world. Yeah, I think I think she lived it out in that that really um, earthy kind of way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. So there are other influences as well. Yeah. Well, the second I would pick out is my husband Peter. Yeah. So, um, and that's when I started more formally thinking about about the environment and about yeah. forests. So Peter was trained in forest science. Um, as we were courting, you know, we spent a fair bit of time walking through the Australian bush, and um, you know, what, I, I learnt the, the names of the plants. So this, this, was a, this was a date, was it? You'd go out yep. and he'd tell you the names of the trees. Yeah. So these were yep. some of our dates. <laughs> <laughs> Always so, going through the bush and learning, yes. yeah, the right. names of trees, but also the little plants that grow on the right. ground. But in your early 30s, though, you got to your early 30s and you weren't quite sure, though, if you fitted in the Christian faith. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I want to I say about that, that it's actually bigger than that. It's not just in my early 30s where I didn't feel that I fitted. I would say I have an ongoing kind of experience of, of fitting, not fitting, fitting, not fitting. Yeah. Um, faith doesn't come easy for me mm-hmm. and I think partly as, a, as someone trained in science that I have a sceptical outlook yeah. and so, you know, I look at the world this way, it's not an easy thing and I've, I've gotten accustomed to that over right. the years. That, that's that's so how you, I'm made up, you, it's okay. You have to you live <laughs> satisfactorily with doubt, so to speak. Exactly, or, yeah. exactly. But yeah. I think in the... Thir- so what makes you stay in it though? Yeah, well, I think in my 30s when I had some, you know, a phase where I was really grappling with that, you know, and less comfortable way one of the things that was really important to me was getting hold of the message version of the bible and starting to read the gospels and mm-hmm. reading them over and eugene over again yeah eugene yeah. peterson's yeah. um a paraphrase i guess of the yeah. bible yeah and the language and the text really made me see particularly jesus in a different way and i really started to catch this vision of jesus as teaching and his life as a radical uh, a really radical life and it was 
that that kind of compelled me. No, I, I really do want to be part of what he's doing. Right, there. yeah. That was really attractive to you. <laughs> yeah. And really earthy, I suppose, which really connected with you. Yeah, yeah. really earthy. That um, His life, his teaching, um, mm. that... that physical point in history. Yeah. And you also met an English couple as well, which were helpful yeah, well, to you. there have been lots of people in my life, and I think this is really important to me. You know, there's been, um, you know, friends that we've met from England, but also, you know, I can think of lots of people, you know, in this congregation who just live out Jesus' life, I mm. think. You know, they, they express Jesus in their lives mm. in ways that makes me keep wanting to be part of this. Right, so you discovered that people committed to environmental care can be Christians. Well, discovered is probably the wrong word (laughs) (laughs) because I've never felt any tension between those things. It's always just been a course. Of course, we're called to care for earth in in the same way. We're called to care for our bodies, our families and to love God. Yeah. So do you think that Jesus would have a compost bin? I think Jesus as a first century Palestinian Jew (laughs) (laughs) would... um, have been very, very careful with his resources. Maybe mm. not a compost bin, but I'm pretty sure the scraps would have been fed to the animals yep. and then gone in to fertilise the soil. Right. There, there was a kind of a fittingness there to the way that they in, engage their environment, so to speak. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Today's big question is what is the right relationship with the environment? And perhaps surprisingly, the Bible helps us answer this big question. The Old Testament book of Psalms was a bit like the songbook of the ancient people of Israel. And our psalm or song 104 is a creation psalm, which outlines an interpretation of the voices of the various components of God's creation. And verses 16 to 18 says, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the conies. So, Kath, how does someone passionate about forests react to this description about the trees of the Lord being abundantly watered and the cedars of Lebanon? I hear it and I say, of course. (laughs) Yeah, why why of (laughs) Of course? Of course. I mean, the Bible's full of passages, not just of God caring for all creation, you know, not just humans, but all creation. And not just that, but of creation praising God. You know, the mm. trees of the field clap their hands. They're, they're excited and joyful. Yeah. And I say, of course, and I, you know, I say this carefully, but I think it's a bit arrogant to imagine that we are the only species that has a relationship with our creator. Mm. Well, this is what it just says here. And then the birds build their nests. The stork has its home in the fir trees. There seems to be sort of a fittingness to the trees and their environment, their relationship with their creator. So verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. So what, what do you make of that? What's the significance there? Well, again, like the Bible is full of passages that I think of the, as the shalom, you know, passages. Shalom. That, what do you mean by shalom? Sort of like a... Peace, wholeness, insights to what I think of as God's dream for, mm-hmm. for the world. Um, these moments where it is rightness. It is like those pictures are often gardens and vineyards and wine. <laughs> <laughs> the good things, you know, yeah. really, really good things. And we see people in this connection um, with their places and living in them, using them. It's, yeah. it's not... It's not hands off, Um, it's using them, but there is a balance, there is a a fittingness in in those images. Just perhaps maybe it's similar to the earthiness that you experienced when you read the Message Bible perhaps, because it's interesting that Eugene Peterson is also a keen environmentalist, so I suppose there's an interesting connection there. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think he's, he's, um, he's thinking about reverence, um, yeah. you know, for all creation uh, mm. resonates with that. Mm. He does draw a distinction between caring for the environment and caring for creation. Um, do you think that's significant? I think, I think it's helpful in two ways. And one is the idea of the environment is pretty abstract. It is good to place ourselves, mm. I think, and to think about not the environment, but to think about the galah in our park, the Wurundjeri country that we walk on, the waterway that might be invisible under our roads. You know, to think about those places and make it personal, mm. I guess. Mm. But I think the other thing it does is recognise those connections of dependence between us as creatures. You know, as creatures, we have this mutual dependence and we have this shared relationship with our creator. Well, that's what the overall message of Psalm 104 is summarised in verse 24, which says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So you would say that's in some respects summarises this overarching sense of a relationship with the environment, would you say? Uh, yeah, and I, I think it, it really um, you know, expresses that sense that we are... You know, we share this, we share this place. Mm. Now, another question's come in from our text line here from our live audience, which probably connects with some of these ideas. It says, why don't I feel the same way about walking in a commercial forest compared to a non-commercial one? Is it the wilderness I'm connecting to, not just the trees? Yeah, I, th I think when we see that, that, um, that very structured orderliness, perhaps it... Um, moves us a little bit away from, like, we, we see the human hand less than we see the hand of creator, potentially, if you're going to put it in um, Christian terms. Mm. Back in those days when I was looking at catching stories of spiritual connection with forests, some of those stories were told about plantations, so... Right. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> now, many Christians have thought about the idea of exploitation of the natural world from Genesis chapter 1, which talks about humanity having dominion over the natural creations. But that's not quite how you see it, though, that understanding Genesis 1, though, is it? And that language has been so problematic and it's something we've got to deal with. Right. I think there's a few things to say here. One is to say, if we think of dominion as exploitation, look how it's worked out. It hasn't worked out very well. <laughs> No, we are, you know, we're looking at um, globally temperatures where we have really changed our environment in ways that disastrous, not just for the forests, but for so many people around the globe. Look how it's worked out. We know that a bacteria can fell us in a moment. The idea of dominion as exploitation is a fantasy. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, also you could argue that the concept of dominion could be informed by what we've just read in Psalm 104, this kind of almost yeah. interconnectedness of the environment. There's, a, yeah. there's interdependence I, there. I think when we read, um, you know, that passage around dominion in the context of the wider Bible and we think about those those beautiful images of peace and wholeness uh, in and those fitting relationships right through the Old Testament, when we listen to Jesus' teaching around simple living mm -hmm. and contentment and being content with what we have it's so clear to me that that is not the vision that God has for, for mm. the way that we relate mm. to the rest of creation mm. but the biblical message isn't simply about creation care but looks to, also looks to the future which is really significant for you isn't it Kath um yeah you know really um 
uncomfortable, uneasy, um, mysterious kind of way. Great. Well, we'll explore that. Because in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul outlines a cosmic vision for the future when he considers the resurrection of the dead. Now, in some ways, he's exploring, wrestling, explaining, and asking many big questions in the passage, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15.35, where he says, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So what do you make of Paul's wrestling here in this passage? Well, I guess I read it in the, the bigger context of, you know, narrative that we see through the Bible of the new creation. And I think, um, you know, sometimes we think that the Bible teaches us that the future means that we die and go to heaven. Um, right. Some yeah. kind of nebulous spiritual kind of idea. Yeah. But so much of the Bible, and I think, you know, to me, the, the, the much more persuasive bits talks about a future that is here, that is earthy, that is physical and material. Mm. And so I read that passage in that context. And that, you know, if you think about it too long, particularly if you're interested in science and the laws of physics and ecology, that just blows your mind. It just... (laughs) (laughs) No sense at all. But I think what I love about that passage is Paul's kind of grappling with it. Yeah. And I love the way that he... um, you know, he uses an ecological metaphor yeah. to try and think about what this means. He uses the idea of a seed, um, that we in this life now are like seeds. Um, we're alive, we're physical. At some point we will die, we'll be buried like yeah. a seed. And then in some future we will be new in the form of a plant. And he's trying to grapple with that. Mm. I'm also really relieved that he kind of concludes it's a mystery yeah. that we don't... <laughs> Don't, which I take to be, you know, we don't actually know. Well, we can't quite gosh, comprehend. Gosh, what a perhaps. thrill. Yeah, what yeah. a thrill to think about these ideas. Yeah. So I, I, I love that. We've got another question from our text line here. So while white Australians are used to thinking of nature as a monster that will eat them, getting lost, drought, fires, etc. Do you think this affects how we relate to the country? Yeah, and I, like I think that that's that's a theme that you see through a lot of history. Like like if you look at the biblical passages around wilderness, for example, it's not a romantic beautiful idea it's actually super scary you mm-hmm. know or yeah. a place that people go for a retreat and then they come back I don't think that that's such a strange idea and I guess it's part of why I think it's so important to be thinking of our cities to break down some of those divisions when we think about nature not to think of nature as something out there yeah. um, but it's something that is here in our cities um, it's it's the possum that's eating all my succulents <laughs> <laughs> The galahs in Gilkin Park. Yeah, that, right. are, that are being nutty. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's here. So, Kath, wrapping up, what is the right relationship with the environment? I want to say, first of all, make it personal. It's not about the environment. It's about birds, trees, water, microbes in the soil. Like, you know, it's, it's personal. It's about this place, this land we walk on. I think the second thing is um, to recognise the mutual dependence we have it's mutual. You know, we are dependent on other creatures as they are dependent on us. And I think that logically leads us to be reverent to other beings, also in the understanding that, you know, we are creatures together in relationship with our creator. And finally, find ways to live (laughs) that allow everything to flourish. And this is all done in the context of uh, the God who makes it all. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. What is the right relationship with the environment from Psalm 104? The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full 
of your creatures. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dr. Kath Williams. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.